1: I was just a just a a hot coal furnace of ambition at that point, you know. I'm older, I'm 28, 29. I realize I got a shot and I have to take it now. I'm shoveling material into the furnace every week, new stuff. Uh, you know, hey, you want? Let's uh, get an interview for you. Yeah, let's go do it. You know, I was just so gung ho to do anything, and I believe that helped.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, my guest today, who I am very excited about and I'm going to give the proper introduction to, and that is my man, Jeff Cesario. (laughs) Jeff was born and raised in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and worked as a musician before stepping up to the much more stable arena of stand-up comedy. (laughs) He's a veteran of The Tonight Show, Letterman. Late Late Show, and four of his own comedy specials, most recently one on Comedy Central. Also one that I produced in our special called You Can Get a Hooker Tomorrow Night. One of the worst titles in our special history. (laughs) Of
1: course it's a great title. Watch me tonight. You can get a hooker tomorrow night.
0: No, it was. I'm just busting your balls. He stars in something that I just saw, which is so funny on YouTube, called The Dick Rossi Show, which is basically like a madman if it were a talk show. I think it's in, in a comedy form. It's hilarious. I suggest you go to the YouTube channel and check it out. He also does a ton of corporate shows, including IBM, Budweiser, Amex, ING, and successful shows all over the country, which are the hardest gigs to do. Most recently, Jeff was the head writer on the Queen Latifah show, (laughs) and before that was executive producer on Russell Brand's Brand X for FX. If you have not seen Russell Brand do stand-up comedy, figure it out, find him, watch him, because... This is a guy who's much maligned in a lot of areas. I don't understand why, because he is one of the most brilliant guys that I've ever seen, and to see him do stand-up just blew my mind. Anyway, Jeff has written for Billy Crystal on the Oscars and wrote on the great show and one of my favorite shows of all time, The Larry Sanders Show. He also wrote the Warner Brothers feature film Jack Frost and won two Emmy Awards for his work on HBO's Dennis Miller Live. Please welcome my friend and one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in the business, Jeff Cesario.
1: Nice to be here, Bear. All right, I finally get to say some. Pr- <laughs> I'm sorry when about that. You have that. a comedian here. Do you realize it had to be 30 to 40 lines that went through my head while you said, "Jeff, don't talk during this part." I, I do know that the, the 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 failures. There are many failures. Many low points. I prefer to approach them as milestones and perseverance. <laughs>
0: well, that's what this podcast is all about. That's it's right. all about you know dealing with all the horror and how you turn it around and make it great.
1: So I've worked in front of the camera and behind the camera, and I know you mentioned that. And, and I always approached it in my head because I came from music as a as a, an artist like a, like a Herbie Hancock or someone who could solo on his own stuff but also be a great sideman. So for me to shift behind a camera was never, it was always, oh, this this sounds cool.
0: Let's try this. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about Kenosha. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know the socioeconomic ramifications of growing up in Kenosha. I don't know Easy. what your family was like. I don't know how it was like growing up. But take us through <laughs> that and tell us where your first inspiration was to wanting to be in the entertainment business.
1: Growing up, my hometown was about 25% Italian. It's only about an hour north of Chicago. Um, about 60,000, 70,000 people. Small factory town. American Motors was there, the big. it was, was It was the nation's other auto town. Outside of Detroit. They built American motors cars there. Uh so it was heavily blue-collar town, uh heavily ethnic. It was Italian poles. It was like a little slice of Jersey, you know, got got fell off and floated down the St. Lawrence Seaway and landed in <laughs> Wisconsin. It was very odd. Most people think I'm from New York or the East Coast until they talk to me for, you know, three minutes and then they realize I have zero guile, (laughs) I have zero street presence whatsoever. And then they go, well, he can't possibly be from New York. He wouldn't know how to catch a cab. So, so that's what it was like. Uh, I grew up, my parents were sort of great collar. My mom was a librarian. My dad was a photographer. He did class pictures and things like that. And, uh, uh, commercial photography and, um, and I had two older brothers. And I think the first inkling for comedy was in, in, uh, Probably junior high when I just, you know, I was socially awkward, extremely shy and not gifted athletically. So there's not a whole lot of places to turn in a blue collar community to try to get chicks. (laughs) So I was ultimately a musician and I found out I was funny, too. And then I had a. um, Now
0: you said you were ultimately a musician. So what instrument did you start playing?
1: Drums and percussion. Got it. I uh, got a music scholarship to Northwestern, went to school there my freshman year, and then I transferred to Wisconsin and finished out at Wisconsin Got and got out of music. Because at some point, it's about the playing. Much like comedy, it's about the comedy. You can have any degree you want, but if you open up your case and pull out your horn and go on the bandstand and you suck, you still suck. <laughs> so <laughs> so it was more about the playing than the degree. So I just thought, well, hell, I'll just get a degree in communications. I was high school. I had a great friend... Um, Steve Houghton, who is tremendous jazz drummer, was a top-call studio drummer out here for years, is now head of the jazz and percussion departments at Indiana, which is one of the best music schools in the country. And he and I did comedy sketches in uh, for the high school variety show. We did Who's on First, and uh, we did a bunch of stuff. We just had a blast together. And because we were both drummers, the timing was kind of there. Even though it was rough, you could kind of feel and... See that the timing was there. And then actually the great lesson I learned from Steve was he was a monster musician, a monster drummer. And he could sight read things down cold. He could play his ass off. We went to college together and he would take about 10 to 15 minutes to get some really cool lick down on his drums, you know. And it would take me like eight hours to learn the same thing. And I realized, you know, yeah, you can do anything you want and you can accomplish anything you want and all of that blue collar stuff but there is something to the merit of affinity you you have to find something you have an affinity for and i realized maybe naturally however my muscles and my brain have been put together drumming isn't going to be it maybe there's something else and that's when i realized i wanted to be a, a comic i'd always watch the comics on on the tonight show with johnny and Man, I remember Steve Landisberg and Franklin Ajay and guys like that. And you go, wow, that is the coolest way to make a living I've ever seen in my life. So I knew I I had a yen to do it, and I finally uh, was able to do it. At the ripe old age of 28, I started to do stand-up. But I knew I'd I'd kill myself if I didn't try it, so I finally tried it.
0: So you go on an open mic night where, and what happens?
1: I did uh, open mic night... In Los Angeles at the Comedy Store, the very first time I was visiting some relatives out here and I decided to sneak away and do it. And, you know, uh, my stomach was just a just a bundle of worms. I can't remember a thing about it. I think I got one laugh in five minutes, but I remember walking off and the great Robert Aguayo, who used to run the open mics at the Comedy Store, great comedian, uh, guitarist, song parodies, things like that. He ran the open stages and I got off and he said, you know... Um, you're pretty good. You should come to the every Monday, uh, workshop or whatever the hell it was. And I said, yeah, I can't if I'm out of town, I gotta go back. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I did that, but that encouraged me. I did a couple more open mics, one in New York where the MC was Joe Piscopo. And, um, that was back when the MCs were the, were the best comedian on the show And they could just host and host. And then when they realized the cherry was about to be popped, they would go up and do their set. You know, that's when they would do their 20.
0: What Jeff is alluding to is when the crowd is at its hottest. Yeah. And you know what's interesting (laughs) about comedy, which is not true of probably any profession, when you go on as a comedian your first time, normally the chances of you doing well are probably 5%, maybe 1%. Yeah. Anybody going up for their first time unless they bring all their friends in the crowd and it's just and even then it's very rare but what happens is if you know anything about comedy and you know anything about the way jokes are structured you can tell when somebody's doing the right stuff even if they don't get the laughs it's just a question of their experience their confidence how they own the stage and so what this person saw in jeff Clearly, Jeff was planting his feet, standing there, had a certain cadence and timing to his jokes. And even if they didn't all go over, he understood where things were going. And that's hey, why he encouraged him.
1: I was in the right key. <laughs> I just wasn't singing right, but yet. But like you say, that's just experience. So you get a rhythm going. And, and it felt right, and I felt compelled to do it, and then I finally moved to Minneapolis. I was living in uh, Madison, Wisconsin at the time, and I moved to Minneapolis to tackle it in earnest, and I hit it right at the perfect time, right in the early, uh, late 1980, early 1981, when comedy was just starting to burst, and there were clubs popping up everywhere. Now um,
0: Minneapolis, the big guy, pardon the pun, Louis Anderson.
1: Louis Anderson. I worked uh, with Louis, a great comedian named Alex Cole, Maybe the funniest guy out of Minneapolis, and that's according to Louie and myself and everybody who got together. Wild Bill Bauer, the late Wild Bill Bauer, just passed away. Hilarious comedian. Uh, Liz Winstead was there. Joel Hodgson was there. Was Liz Winstead
0: was one of the people who helped create The Daily yeah. Show.
1: And Joel Hodgson created Mystery Science Theater 3000 and a bunch of other things. Brilliant kid. Um, so, I was a kid then. Uh, so, we were... All there, there was like one club. Then we branched out and started two clubs. And the greatest thing about Minneapolis is that I was getting two to two and a half hours of stage time within three months of moving there. And stage time is When you say two and a
0: half hours and how long?
1: I would say probably five to six sets a week at 20, 15, 20 minutes a set. So, you know, I was, for and for a market like that, that's a lot of work. And for any market. That's a lot of work.
0: So Louis was the first one from that market to get noticed. He yeah. did the Tonight Show, which was a, a groundbreaking Tonight Show. And back then, you did the Tonight Show, and if you really, really, really hit it out of the park, you were working fifteen hundred to two thousand seat theaters. I mean, you were you were skipping the comedy clubs. Yeah, <laughs> and <laughs> that's, that's right. what happened to Louis. He did the Tonight Show, and Roseanne had done it within maybe a year of him, and all of a sudden he's on the road with Roseanne and he's doing three
1: to 5,000 yeah. seaters. Yeah. In the new vernacular, uh, there was one platform at the time. It was Johnny Carson. That's <laughs> that right. Was it. There wasn't multi-platforms anywhere. You just did Carson. And if you did well, you know, good things happened.
0: So you saw Louis Bray. Comedians sometimes are cruel in certain markets and they're not supportive in certain markets. And then just like any job, but there's also certain markets where they are supportive of each other. Like Boston was one of those markets yeah, where people were very supportive. So when Louie broke and all of you saw, holy shit, this can happen, right. were you guys supportive of him or were people sniping, uh, how come he got it and we didn't get it?
1: Well, comedy is by nature competitive, and it was it's less so now. I think there's more of a camaraderie to stand-ups, to improv guys. I th- I, you know, and just... The progress of men, especially, <laughs> in business has made it a little more congenial, I think. Uh, back then it was a little more cutthroat. But still, I think overall, pretty, uh, very supportive. And, you know, Louis and I got along famously back in Minneapolis. I learned a ton from Louis about how to market yourself, how to brand uh, how to make sure people get to the club? Louis Louis is a, a master at that kind of stuff. In addition to being a tremendous comic, so when he hit, I would say most of us were like, even if you, even if there were guys there who who, who were jealous, even they, I think, would have to say this is great for everybody because a, a comic came out of a small market like Minneapolis, hit it just a, you know just a cannon shot over the left field wall. I mean that shot of his on the Tonight Show was huge. And um, it was so great. And we said, uh, yeah, we can do it. We can. And I was the next guy out here from that. And uh,
0: Now, can you tell our audience some of the things that Louis taught you early on? Oh, sure. You know, before there was anything, what were the things that he taught you about business and how to do things and how to brand yourself and how to...
1: Well, he knew the business, and, you know, I—, I
0: How did he know
1: the I business? I was off the turnip chart. Tr- I think he had it naturally. I think there are guys, there are people—and when I say guys, I mean men and women. There are comics—who have a natural muscle for the business side of it. I never did. He always did. He knew how to market. He knew what people may want. He knew there were separate agendas in a room. He knew if I'm talking to the newspaper guy, he's going to need something to write a story about me to make it worth his while to do it. And at the same time, I got to give him something that's going to get people out. You know, he knew how to package. He knew how to market. He was he was a smart, smart guy. So, we all started a little joint called Mickey Finn's, where we would have to hang these plywood walls to separate off a fifty seat area from. It was the Steam Fitters and Pipe Fitters Union building, so they had a little bar on the first floor. We'd have to hang these uh, pieces of plywood so that you wouldn't hear. People talking about steam fitting and pipe fitting on the other side of it. And then we would do our comedy. And then comedy just boomed. And Louis said, I think we can find another market. And we went to the improv theater in town, Dudley Riggs, which uh, Franken and Davis, Al Franken and, and Tom Davis came out of there.
0: I opened for them at Boston University wow. in 1980.
1: Wow. They were out of there.
0: Big writers on Saturday Night Live. Yes. For those of you who don't know, and Al Franken, of course, now a uh,
1: senator from Minnesota. That's right. So And and several other really tremendous uh, improv people came out of there, including Peter Tolan, who went on to uh, do Dennis Leary's show. And Rescue on, Me. And worked on uh, uh, Larry Sanders. And he's now doing uh, Jim Gaffigan's thing, I mm-hmm. think. And uh, yeah, a tremendously talented uh, market. And uh, they had two theaters in town. One was for the resident company. They were always there. One was for the touring company. They were only there three or four months out of the year because they were touring. So Louis said, well... There's a room that's empty. Let's go talk to Dudley Riggs, who's an actual guy, a brilliant, funny, warm, wonderful guy. So Louie went and met with him and said, here's the deal. We'll take the weekends. We'll work on a split of the door, so you don't get hurt. If, if we make money, you make money. And let's see what happens. So he cut some basic business things with him. And I was just trying to learn everything I could from Louie. And then Louis got the dates. Louie went out. Louie did the PR. We hit the newspapers. He was bigger than life. And he was making, you know, he would, he, the hook we had is, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go out and do four great comedians. And it was myself, Joel Madison, who came out here, wound up working on Roseanne, created Malcolm and Eddie, another tremendous comedian. Alex Cole, who was, who was in many ways the most talented of all of us, a tremendous actor and comedian who was already the guy in town who was working the colleges and all the big gigs and louis and myself the four of us we called ourselves the minneapolis comedy all-stars which pissed off everybody in town <laughs> you know but louis louis said well you know what are we going to call us a group of guys we got to call us something with a little pizzazz you know a little zets so he knew to do that and then he said here's what we're going to do we're going to come back every time the touring company is not here with brand new material well you know i i'm a I'm a writing machine. I love to write jokes. So for me, it was like, all right, I'll take that challenge. But even after two of those, and and the other guys were all like, really? We got got to write new material every three months? Are you crazy? A new 20? You know, but it was a hook enough where all the newspapers in town went, all right, we'll run a story on that. We got three, four, five stories on it, the alternative papers, uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune, St. Paul Pioneer Press.
0: Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. And to put this into perspective, for those of you who don't know how hard it is to write comedy, I'd say the average amount of material that a working stand-up comedian writes and puts back into his act, at best a year... Would be ten minutes now I'm not talking about louis c k who's writing a new special every year, Chris Rock who's working on <laughs> a I'm talking about just the average normal
1: comedian on the road right average quality tremendous comedian on the road, even a Brian Regan because you're working all the time and people want to see that a material you're you're feathering in your new stuff here and there and a guy like that to come up with fifteen twenty killer minutes, probably take him six months to a year. So, yeah, but, you know, when you're that young, you're just pounding out crap. I don't know what the hell I was doing, you know. So he got that hook in, and I'll never forget, we, Louis had a uh, powder blue mercury marquee that, in, in the vernacular of the upper Midwest, it was called a sled, because it could get you through the winter. It was one of those big ass American cars that was just 16 feet and had all kinds of weight all over it that it shouldn't have that would get you out of a snowdrift. And we rounded the corner to uh, Dudley Riggs in Seven Corners, a little neighborhood in Minneapolis. And there were on opening night, and there were people lined up around a corner. And I went, Holy shit, Louis did it. Louis did it. Louis knew how to do it, and he did it. He's, he is never one to avoid rolling the dice. And he rolled the dice, and we were packed for three months. We were the hottest ticket in town. It was so cool and so impressive. And then we put a couple bells and whistles on the show, but it was mostly just stand-up. It was great. It was great. And, and so I learned that from Louie. I learned how to market.
0: Like you said, taking the risk. Here's a guy. He, he goes out. There's no risk on the theater at all. No risk at all. The only risk were on the performers who were working for nothing, who were working hours and hours to promote and get it ready for nothing yeah. with no guarantee that their time put in would make them money. The guy at the theater, he didn't give a shit because there was nothing in the theater anyway. If there were 10 people that were there, it was better than what he was doing.
1: And Louie was smart enough to know that what I could bring to the table for him, in addition to having shown that I had potential and was funny, was I was just a just a a hot coal furnace of ambition at that point you know I'm older I'm 28 29 I realized I got a shot and I have to take it now I'm shoveling material into the furnace every week new stuff I, you know hey you want let's uh, get an interview for you yeah let's go do it you know I was just so gung-ho to do anything and I believe that helped drive it as well so so, what, so what happens
0: next for you
1: After that, um, how do you get here? I just decided to move. Louie had done it about nine months before me, so I knew I knew one person out here. the The double-edged sword of working a market like Minneapolis at that time was was the the positive was I got all that stage time uh, and got to make all those mistakes in a very short period of time. Those timing mistakes, those idiot things you do, how to work a crowd, how not to get upset when someone hackles, how to. All these things that that if you don't have that level of experience, you just don't know. I got to work all of that out. The other side of that sword is that nobody was coming through town. We didn't have a club in town. We had one headliner through my entire two and a half years in Minneapolis was Rich Scheidner. That was the only guy who came through town. <laughs> That's because we didn't have a club that could really afford to do it or knew how to take advantage of a national headliner. So we just never got any national headliners. We filled up all that time ourselves. Consequently, when I got out here, I didn't know anybody. And I'm painfully shy. So I moved out here and I would go to New York sporadically. I, I didn't leave until I knew I had a circuit of clubs in the Midwest that I could go to and headline. I knew I could make my nut for the year. So I could work Minneapolis. I could work the gallery up in Minneapolis. I could work uh, uh, the comedy works in Denver. I could work uh, Stanford's in Kansas City. And and so I had four, five, six clubs that I knew I could work and make my money. And then I would just go to New York and try to start breaking in there. And between New York and here... uh, what my shyness, I I think was perceived as as arrogance, especially out here. I think because I would just stand by myself in, in a corner because I was fucking petrified. You know, <laughs> I just I, I don't know anybody. I'm trying to get on stage. I have no idea. You know, and and it I I didn't find that out until I talked to some guys much later, and they just said, "Well, we just thought you you know you were off by yourself doing your own thing or something." And I just said, "No, I'm." I'm Scared shitless. I'm trying to find the bathroom for God's sake. You know? <laughs> and the only people who understood that was was New York. When I went to, when I went to Catch in New York,
0: Catch a Rising Star.
1: And uh, Louis Ferranda was bartender oh, who went on to run Carolines. Yes,
0: and he also ran Catch a Rising Star. And he probably is the longest running talent booker. And uh, the comedy club scene in New York, probably in the country.
1: And, and I'll never forget it. I'm standing in that old catch on 2nd Avenue, I think it was. This is that long, narrow room with that long, narrow bar. And I'm just cowering in a corner. And New York, he he kind of knew. I mean, he took one look at me. I didn't know anybody. And he just said, you want a bear... I said, I would love a beer. And he gave me a beer and I loosened up and then I had good sets at Catch and that was the place I went to work when I was in when I was in New York.
0: Yeah. And Catch a Rising Star was basically if Letterman was the validation stamp of comedy for yeah. stand up Catch a Rising Star was the validation stamp for a stand up comedian in New York City.
1: Yeah. So I did that, and then I was fortunate enough to get on a Letterman Showcase in in eighty four, and they liked me, and they put me on. So,
0: who was on that Showcase with you?
1: Oh boy, I don't remember. I don't remember. Did
0: you feel like you had a good set when you left and got in your car? Did you say, "I got this"?
1: I, I didn't say I got it, but I said, "That's as that's as good." That's I got all the wood I could on that. <laughs> I could. <laughs> I took out the the big berth and I hit it as hard as I could. Oh. I had a really good set and I remember they were laughing pretty hard uh, Morty and uh, and Barry Sand, who were producing Letterman at the time. And who calls you? uh Morty, to say you got it so so and that and then when I did that I have i I remember walking around Central Park just in a freaking days.
0: Now this is before you did it This or is after? the night before the set. so the night before now what normally happens in comedy what I find. And this is really bizarre. I don't know if it's true of you back then. But one of the things you hope for as a comic, I know this is going to sound crazy. You practice your set, you practice your set, sometimes Morty or somebody will come out to see you a couple of times, get it down the way it's supposed to be. And you do really, really well. And normally what happens for some reason, the set before you do the show, wherever you are, doesn't really go that well. Yeah. And that's for some reason that's a good luck charm. And it doesn't seem like it should be, but it yeah. is. It, it it's kind of humbles you and it gets you like, okay, now I know what I got to right. do.
1: Especially in those days, you know, in the the halcyon days of stand up, which, you know, those hardcore club days. That was sort of the the bugaboo. That that was one of the superstitions was if your set went really well the night before, it was a jinx. <laughs> which nowadays, I don't think anybody would care. But but back then, you know, it, it, that, it was a little bit of a black cat vibe if that happened. Um, and I think at one point I stopped running it because I just run it so much. And then I, it was almost like an Andy Kaufman bit. Then I went into this long stretch where I, I said, I have to keep running it or I'm going to forget key words. And then I came out the other side like a month after that started. And I realized, oh, I'm not going to forget it if I just relax. How do I relax? Oh, God, how do I relax? So. I'm crashing on my brother's floor. He had a studio apartment in New York at the time, and, and I just remember I, I, getting the biggest zit on my life on my nose. I'd like this huge headlight zit. How like long befo- before? Two days before. So I'm literally cutting it and pouring it I, I can't go on <laughs> national TV with a giant headlight on my nose. Unfortunately, I it, it I got rid of it. Let's just say that. And I was able to go on and do the set, and the set went really well.
0: Now, you were talking about how you went, were walking through Central Park the day before. What were you thinking?
1: I was just thinking, what do I do? Do I run my set anymore? Do I just walk? I mean, you're so jacked on adrenaline. And a set like that, is, that was just when, uh, you know, there were... a, a couple other places you could go if you were a stand-up not really it was still the tonight show but letterman started to use younger comics and i thought man if i get this and i do well this is going to mean something you know and uh that made me nervous and then just going up and not you don't want to fuck up huge you know i mean that's what that's the that's the giant uh, um grim reaper comedically in the back of your head is is you are going to say something you are not supposed to say. You're going to do something you're not supposed to do. You're going to forget your whole life. I mean, it's just a, a guy in a black hood in the back of your head just saying all this shit, and you have to relax, get that guy out of there, and just do your job.
0: Well, I believe you're talking about the Letterman show on NBC that yeah, you did. 84. Now, this is what's also was interesting about the Letterman show. I don't even understand how this happens because Dave was a stand-up comic but normally a stand-up comic knows the best setup for comedy and wants himself and his comedians to win but clearly Dave didn't have a say on how the setup of this particular show was run because if you remember correctly if you notice you go into any comedy club any theater people are right up to the stage, right? They can almost touch you. They're shoulder to shoulder. There's no space, nothing for anything to get lost. The Letterman show, you walk down on your mark, no stage. That, that happens a lot on talk shows. But then there's like 20 to 30 feet in front of you of empty space with three or four cameras rolling around, and then your audience is now up high, about five or six feet higher, farther back than you. Right. So whenever you see the old Letterman shows of people doing stand-up on NBC, what you'll notice is the comedians never killed as hard as they did on the regular Tonight Show when the crowd was right... In front of them, or these other talk shows, but when they did, you like Jeff did, and he killed, you really know that somebody's doing something special.
1: Yeah, I do remember there was a little different vibe, but you know, as you know, you can't do. What are you going to do? You got to have cameras. They got to have a place to run. You know, uh, they got to have you know th- theater or proscenium seating or whatever you want to call it, banked seating, because you know they got to accommodate five hundred people in in the joint. I was fortunate in that I'd worked a room in Minneapolis called the uh, Carlton Celebrity Room, which I believe was a uh, mob laun- money laundering joint. That's all I, but It was like a 1,000-seat showroom in Bloomington, Minnesota for no reason. But they would have all kinds of sort of Vegas acts come through. So I had opened for Gladys Knight there. I'd opened for uh, the Commodores. Um, you know, I'd opened for... For a lot of bands like that at this venue, which had that banked seating, so I'd gotten used. To, and Alex Cole, who had worked a ton of those kinds of venues, had given me some advice. He said, "Just keep your eye line up, connect to everybody in the room. Just you're, when you're at a club, you used to work in here." When you're in a theater like that, you got to work here. You got to work up there. You got to work over there. You got to work down there. You got to work the whole room. So even when I got into that TV studio, I it clicked. I said, "Oh, there's people up there. I got to I got to throw a couple of eyeballs up there." You know, and you just start to connect, and that just helps the energy in the room. So that didn't throw me in Letterman. But yeah, yet the vibe was a little. Vibe was a little different there, but I just went out and, you know, you're not thinking about anything, but, you know, don't don't fuck up the adjective that you have coming up that tees up the next bit.
0: Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. No, it's so true. Comedy clubs, comedians are used to looking down. Talk shows, you have to learn to look up. Yeah, you got to connect. So you do the show. What happens to your life after the show?
1: my price in the clubs goes up 20 to 30%. I get probably a 30-date college tour out of it. I am stamped as someone to keep an eye on inside the business and outside i'm making more money i'm getting my name a little further out there and this is back before anything resembling social media so uh so you just work the gigs you work those clubs and so i was able to do that i did another let in a couple years later and lo and behold um uh, you know the tonight show had been keeping an eye on me jim mccauley and uh and i did a tonight show in 87 which was mind-boggling. With Johnny. With Johnny. I Talk just, about that. I, it, well, you know, I, I was fortunate in, th- in that I'd had a couple of Letterman's under my belt at that point, so I didn't have to worry so much about the mechanics. I could really focus on the bit, and Macaulay helped me craft that, you know. Um, you pull from divergent areas of your act to do a television set, you know, you rarely are able to pull six minutes It's in in its entirety from your act and drop it onto television. Usually they go, we like this two minutes, and then we like the two minutes of the sports stuff, and then how about that cooking thing you do? And then it's up to you to make that cohesive and feel like that's the way you do it every night of your life. Um, so I was able to kind of pull that together with Macaulay. And of course, in retrospect now, and a lot of the fun of talking to you here will be to... to reflect on what I've learned from behind the camera. In retrospect, Jim McCauley's whole job at that point, rest his soul, was, you know, please Johnny. That's the name of the job. Get comics on that Johnny will think is funny, that Johnny will like, that Johnny will want back. So... Anything that's in the comic's head, geez, why didn't he like that bit? What do you want that? Well, I usually do those two bits together. You know, it didn't matter. The guy's working for you, going, hey, I just want you to get back out with fucking Johnny.
0: What comedians don't like about that philosophy is the fact that, let's say you have a five minute bit on surfing, and Jim McCauley or whoever the booker is today says, hey, I love this last two minutes of the surfing bit. Well, Now you can't do the surfing bit the way you normally do it on television, unless maybe you do an hour special and you want to do the whole piece and you've elaborated on it. But for another late-night talk show, that bit is dead.
1: Right, true. But the advantage now is there's so many platforms where you can go where they're willing to let you do the full five-minute thing. Nowadays, you have that luxury. I believe there's places you can go that will do it. Nowadays, you can develop enough of a branding enough of of a celebrity branding to your name where you may find a venue that'll go we've got so you know we've got Mike Perbiglia here Mike do that whole chunk you know don't just chop it up but back then you know it was there was a very very small end of the funnel and uh, <laughs> you're just shoveling comics in the big side of the funnel and only a few are coming out the end so you did whatever you did and, and I just remember going out and my first line uh got a really great response and that just relaxed me and I, and I, and I remember the joke was uh you know I don't look uh, I'm not from California I moved out here uh I certainly don't look like I'm from California I show up at a beach out here and people go who called a cab? <laughs> that was my <laughs> joke and and that did really well and then I killed the rest of the way it was very uh Relaxing, and I think Macaulay knew if you hit that joke, the first one out of the park, you, you, this kid'll relax, and and uh, it was phenomenal. And then it was Carson and Carl Reiner. That's back when guests used to stick around. So I'm, wow. I'm already doing my set in front of comedy royalty, and then to have that good a set and to have Carson give the big okay and
0: that meant that you had. Have- the second validation stamp yeah. of God. And he
1: said, you're going to be hearing a lot from this kid or something like that. And I was just like I'm on cloud nine. So that was great. And then I did like 14 in the next four years. I you did just,
0: 14 Tonight Show. I was just
1: hammering them. Seven or eight with Johnny. And, and When was seven.
0: the first time they allowed you to go to the couch after your
1: set? My fifth time.
0: So you knew you were going to the couch. Yeah. Had you ever said hello to Johnny?
1: I think he might have said hello once real <laughs> quick. But... I quickly was able to uh, kind of feel the vibe with him. It, he, he'd like to kind of take little tangents off the prepared uh, bullet points. Uh, on panel, they would give the host three or four bullet points, which were essentially glorified conversational setups to another bit for you. But Johnny liked to go off of those, you know. And and I, I loved it because... It was like sitting around with a comic, bullshitting a premise, you know? And I realized, oh man, he's a comic who never gets to do this anymore. He's too big. There's nobody sitting around at a bar with Johnny, three, four, five guys sitting around with a Rob Roy spitballing shit. You know, he doesn't get to do it. This is where he gets to do it on national TV. So the very first time I did panel, my first setup, he kind of took a little left and I went with him and he got a big laugh. And then I tagged it and got a big laugh. And I thought, this is fun. And he like responded to that. So my next two or three with Johnny I had I did panel as well and I always had a good time.
0: Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the podcast. I wanna to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It's centered on a man who'd been in prison for thirty years was the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrykatz.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world, many of which you'll hear on the next three weeks of podcasts. So just go to barrykatz.com, the merch page, Pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I have partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years, Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Bronson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind, workshop, or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of tony robbins the best in the business he's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business so if you're ready to take your life to the next level they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. look I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to BarryKBB.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends.
1: You get all the money Drive that Fancy car All the people Love you Cause you're going For Life is for the dreamer stay they have All to gain It's never quite Over So it all feels Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support and have a great day.